So I led a like a cohort-based learning process for, for like emerging leaders in education in Philly here. I asked people in like November or something, I was like, hey, people are building, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, Kwanzaa lists, wish lists on Amazon. So tell me your best leadership book, your favorite book about leadership. And people are writing like good to great and like all the stuff that you'd sort of expect them to write. Except one of my participants wrote Horton, here's a who. I kind of thought it was like a joke, right? I'm like, get the heck out of here. So, you know, go ahead, explain. Horton, here's a who. Lay it on me. I don't get it. And what she said was, think about that book for a second. Horton can hear something. He becomes aware of something. Nobody else understands. Nobody else is aware of. And now he's got a decision to make. Do you go on and be popular? Make the easy decision to sort of say, ah, I can't, there's nothing I can do, bro. Or do you put yourself on the line? Do you put your credibility at risk? Do you put your own personal safety at risk and say, no, 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 now that I know this thing, I can't unsee it. And the moral thing to do, the right thing to do is to stand up to power and say, stop. I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. We've paused our regular podcast episodes to produce this 10-part mini-series called White Men and the Journey Towards Anti-Racism. While you can listen to the episodes in any order, if you're joining us in the midst of this adventure, I invite you to check out episode 54 of our podcast, where my co-host Lauren Ruffin and I introduce the series and frame these conversations. All of the episodes, as well as a whole host of amazing resources on the topic not by white guys, can be found on workshouldnsuck.co. In this series, we're talking with a variety of white guys who are personally and professionally engaged in anti-racism work. When asked, they each define the work in slightly different ways. Some articulate it as anti-racism or anti-oppression work. Others say they approach it more through a justice lens. Others, inclusion and belonging. Still others, equity and impact. Through these conversations, we'll explore the moments that led each of them to do this work, including their initial realizations that this was work for white guys to be doing. We'll discuss what's been most impactful and resonant to them in the journey, what's been most challenging, and since this is a podcast about the workplace, we'll discuss how this work shows up in the organizations they lead and the ones they work with. On today's conversation, I'm joined by Mark Manella. For 15 years, Mark was the CEO of KIPP Philadelphia Public Schools, and he's currently an independent consultant working with clients that range from professional sports teams to charter schools to nonprofits. You can read more about Mark in his bio that's included in the episode description. So in the interest of time, let's get going. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So how do you typically introduce yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, so my name is Mark Manella. And after a 20-year career in education, I about a couple of years ago, I set out to start my own independent consulting practice. In that practice, my work is broken down into two different books. I've got nonprofit sort of schools-focused consulting work, which has a lot to do with sort of like organizational dynamics and setting up strong learning environments and other sort of like executive leadership type work, like executive leadership coaching, et cetera. And then I've sort of stumbled into this other piece of work, which is working with professional sports teams and high-level athletics organizations, including the Cleveland Guardians, the Brooklyn Nets, the United States Olympics Committee. And with those clients, I'm really helping them 
them to apply the lessons that we've learned, both through cognitive psychology, but also through how schools have evolved over the last 20, 50 years, and applying those into a coaching setting, into a, a sports setting, because coaching has a ton of teaching in it. And the lessons of that our very best teachers can teach us about how to help people be able to do new things is something that can be applied very directly into a sports context. I sort of am, am split into two different roles and I enjoy them both equally. So I really love the fact that in this moment in my career, I get to do both things. What does that look like from the coaching context? Like, how, what does it look like when you're applying that that learning from the education context? Yeah, I mean, it's actually really similar to teacher coaching. When I would coach teachers, I would walk into a classroom. We have established that there's content that needs to be taught, but also there's pedagogical approaches that we want to see our teachers take to help our kids learn. You know, I think that when we think about what teaching, great teaching should look like, there's lots of different ideas for that, I think there's still this antiquity at some level that the teacher is standing in the front of a room with straight lines of desks with kids sitting with their hands folded, paying rapt attention to the teacher. The teacher knows every answer is telling the kids all the things they need to know. The kids are remembering it, and then they go off to be doctors, lawyers, and astronauts, right? That is not what great teaching should look like. Great teaching needs to engage the learner. Great teaching needs to build on yesterday's lesson and anticipate where they're going to go tomorrow. Great teaching needs to assess what the students can do, and then adjust when these 14 can do this thing now, but these six cannot. What do I do as the teacher, right? Well, now let's shift that and put it to a coaching context. I've got a team full of baseball players. There is an idea about what they should be able to do base running wise, right? And so I can't go into a session with a bunch of players and say, today I'm going to teach base running. That's way too general. And what are you going to do to teach it? Are you just going to talk to them about base running? Or are you actually going to say, okay, today we're going to talk about secondary leads. We're going to talk about the right timing on taking a secondary lead. We're going to talk about the right distance from the bag. And we're going to talk about how do you adjust that to specific game situations. That's an objective. That's the same thing that I want my fourth grade math teacher doing, right? I want my fourth grade math teacher, they're not there to teach division. They're there to teach, okay, we're, today we are going to divide two digit by three digit numbers. And we are going to use the X method or whatever. You have to boil down with some real specificity what it is you're going to teach today. I might coach a teacher how to do that on Tuesday, and I might be working with a coach on Wednesday. And it's kind of the same thing. There's a huge amount of overlap. Now, look, I'm not a baseball coach. I do not, <laughs> I don't know the answer to any of those questions I just said about secondary leads. <laughs> but I also was coaching Spanish teachers, and I don't speak Spanish. I was coaching, you know, calculus teachers, and I don't remember a lick of calculus. The fundamentals about what we do as teachers, it stays the same. So I've been able to convince enough people of that in pro sports <laughs> that they've hired me to help our coaches in that way. That's a really cool application of one sector's learning and approach to, to another's. And, and it makes me think of the work we're talking about today on, on this conversation. How, how can we apply this frame to what we're doing? And, to organizational design, how we show up in community. So I guess it's the transitive property of the work. Absolutely. When I think back to my undergraduate career, I thought I was pre-med. I was getting this biology degree. And at some point I realized I didn't want to be pre-med anymore. And this biology degree was not really going to be that useful. And I added a psych second major. And I'm so glad that I did 
I think that the fundamental underpinnings that I pulled from psychology and the, and the fact that like I'm not afraid of the cognitive science literature, right? I can dig into like Kahneman's thinking fast and slow and and it's it's a slog, but it's not Greek to me. I understand it. And then one of the things that I've been able to do over the years is I've developed an ability to explain relatively complex things, relatively straightforward manner. And like, how do you apply this theory in real life? And I think that helped me in leadership. I think that helped me as a teacher because I started my career as a classroom teacher, biology teacher. And I think it now helps me in this second act that I found myself in where I'm explaining these cognitive science principles, cognitive psychology principles to a professional basketball coach. There's a lot of that transitive property that I think is is relevant to the work that I do. You're taking the learnings from from your college days and and applying those to through the different settings, which is I think really exciting to see how it how it might impact different venues. It is amazing. You know, when you think about the value of a psych degree and just in general, I suppose like the value of like the humanities and the value of a liberal arts degree. It has so much to do with your ability to understand the world around you. And I think about empathy as this superpower. Your ability to anticipate, how is this action that I take? How is this sentence that I say? How is how I'm showing up? How is all of this being read by different people? And, you know, I think as you think about your ability to be empathetic and how important that is as a leader, there's so many different applications and so many different ways that that'll impact your actions. I can show up at spring training, and I'll already know that like there are going to be some baseball coaches that are resistant because I, you know, I topped out at high school baseball and I've coached my kids' little league team, but that is not the same thing that these guys do, right? And so how do I anticipate and assess and adjust what I'm doing to try and be useful, understanding what it is that might be their self-talk or the narrative in their head, and how do I get past that in order to sort of break through and be of use? I think about empathy a lot and trying to understand the impact I'm having on other people. Talking about how you show up, can you sort of take us through the arc of like what led to two white guys sitting down for a <laughs> podcast to talk about race and racism? I mean, where do I begin? <laughs> right? I mean, I, you know, I suppose I'll begin at the beginning. Grew up in upstate New York, progressive-ish, not like all the way progressive, but like a, a family that at the time, you know, voted strongly Democrat. My dad was a research scientist. My mom stayed at home. And then after my sibling and I grew up, she started a small business. We were very much raised to be colorblind. We didn't call it that because uh, we never talked about it. But we were sort of good white people who believed that like black people were just as good as us and could be anything. And so could we. And like there was no difference. And it was an embarrassingly long time and far away into my career before I understood how that view in and of itself was problematic. But I think that being raised that way and also being raised in a manner which was had a strong sort of social justice underpinning. So like we always were fighting for the little guy. And the idea that there is fairness and fairness matters, equality matters, and we should be actively trying to make the world a better place in that image. As you sort of fast forward through my college years and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I graduate, and as I mentioned a moment ago, I'm not pre-med anymore, I was very much attracted to Teach for America because I said to myself, look, this is great, right? I can teach biology. I know this stuff. I liked biology back in high school, so I could teach high school biology. And 
I could go teach at like a suburban school, like where I grew up, or I could go teach in a private school, but really like what an opportunity to go teach where they need great teachers to go teach in an inner city or in a rural community. I ended up being placed in Baltimore. I got in, I ended up being placed in Baltimore, Maryland back in the late nineties. As a 22 year old guy trying to process that experience was really just eye-opening to me. I had barely driven through the parts of town growing up and in my 22 years prior that I was now going to every day where I was working, where I was trying to become accepted by a community and a member of a community where everybody was of a different race than me. The, the school I was placed in was almost 100% African-American. This faculty was almost 100% African-American. And so as a white guy, you know, race was all around me, but I still wasn't ready to call it that, to talk about that. You talk about sort of the economic aspect. Well, it's not because they're black, it's because they're poor. You talk about the sort of the cultural aspect. I think that was really when I started to get my first understanding that this is so systemic because 23-year-old me would go home to upstate New York and to the suburbs and at Christmas parties would be talking about what I was doing. And there were all kinds of sort of problematic attitudes that my parents' friends would have. It's like, wow, you're in Teach America. That's incredible. And I think they really saw it almost as like missionary work. Whereas Teach for America very much is trying to not set it up that way. Lots of people, and I think in the beginning, myself included, didn't understand a different way to think about it. It felt like I'm a have, I go to a have not, and I'm going to teach them because I have something that they do not. I have an education. I have social capital. I have all these things, right? As I'm trying to process this, what I, the way I started to explain it to my parents' friends was, you know, there's nothing quote unquote wrong with my kids. <laughs> kids are awesome. The kids are beautiful. They're brilliant. They have been like criminally undertaught. That's not their fault. Like, it's just not. And it's not their parents' fault. As a society, we've decided that like those kids in West Baltimore don't matter as much as I did, or at least that's what it felt like to 23-year-old me. You start to try and, and make sense of that. And as I continued on in my career, I said, you know, I taught in West Baltimore for a couple of years. I moved to Philadelphia. I taught in North Philadelphia at a different, now I was at a district school in Baltimore, and then I went to a charter school in Philadelphia. Because 25-year-old me says, well, the system is what screwed up. And so maybe a charter school being a still a public school that serves all kids, but is not part of this big bureaucratic school district, Maybe a charter school, you can get away from that, that we're leaving the system behind, we're independent. But it's all the same stuff. It wasn't <laughs> better, quote unquote. It was different. There was still a system, even though the system was like a principal and assistant principal, <laughs> two administrators, there were still decisions being made that I could very squarely see were not being made in the best interest of kids. And so now 26, 27-year-old me is trying to make sense of that. I got this idea in my head that, you know what, I could start a school. And if I started a school, it wouldn't be like that. I found Kip or Kip found me, I'm not sure which, and I applied for what they called the Fisher Fellowship. The Fisher Fellowship is a one-year training that teaches teachers to become principals of charter schools in the community that they're currently working as teachers. So the National Kip Foundation provided the training, provided technical support, helped me write a charter application, helped me design a curriculum that was aligned to Pennsylvania state standards and all of that. KIPP now has 220, 230 schools across the country. But at the time I opened up like the 16th one or something. So this is back in 2002. KIPP had this track record that was 
proving something very different was possible for kids in inner city and rural communities, what we at the time at KIPP called educationally underserved communities, right? Trying to get away from like a deficit mindset. There's nothing wrong with our community other than the fact that some system has decided not to invest in it. And so we opened that school and for the next 15 years, I led that school first as principal of our flagship school in two, starting in 2003. Then for 10 years, I led our expansion efforts because our initial school had a pretty good deal of success and we started getting this massive wait list. So now there's like thousands of kids who want to get into our school, but because we have a cap imposed upon us as part of our charter agreement with the district, basically like we have a contract with the district that says you can have this many kids. And so now we have thousands of kids who want to get in. And so we started adding more schools. So we put new charter applications in to add additional KIPP Philadelphia schools. What started with 95th graders in an abandoned community center in North Philadelphia turned into, over the 15 years I was there, six schools, K to 12, serving over 2,000 kids. We've got over 200 employees. We're running like a $30 million budget. I'm raising about four or $5 million a year to supplement the public revenue that we bring in as a charter school, all to try and provide a different kind of experience for our kids. And our kids found a great deal of success in that. But KIPP had its detractors too, some of them outside of KIPP looking in. And, you know, we had loyal dissents inside of KIPP as well. And there was a, there was a real tension that we were trying to navigate at KIPP. And at, I'll speak specifically to KIPP Philadelphia, the school I was running as principal, and then the schools, the network I was running as CEO. We were college preparatory schools. We were designed to help our kids. And we actually used the term back in the early 2000s, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We said that explicitly. We said it to the families we were recruiting. We're going to provide you with this opportunity. You're going to have fantastic teachers. You're going to have as much resources as we can bring. We're going to go on field trips every month. We're going to go on a big end of year field trip at the end. That's going to be a culminating experience for all of your lessons. It's going to be academic in nature. We had a track record from the original flagship schools that we were building in Philadelphia that says you're going to be way more likely to go to and through college if you finish with us. But we had this inherent tension. And one of my students, one of my, my first class of students, when four years in, when she was an eighth grader about to go off to high school, she asked this very pointed question, Dina. She asked this question in the middle of a class. And she was like, Mr. Manel, why do you hate the way we talk? So what do you mean? I don't, I don't, I'm not following. She's like, you're constantly telling us to speak proper grammar. So what are you trying to say about the way that we talk now? Like, what's not proper about it? I tried to give this over-intellectualized response about what I, at the time we called standard American vernacular English versus African American vernacular English. And there's nothing wrong with the way that you talk, but if we are trying to prepare you for a world that is going to judge you by things that maybe aren't important, we're basically trying to teach you a cheat code to serve. And I didn't have these words at the time. And even if I did, I'm not sure if I would have said them to an eighth grader or not. I don't know. But basically to grow up in a white supremacist world. It's like if we're trying to set you up to thrive in this world that itself is broken. And so how do you actually do that? I think we were blind to that question in the early years. And then at some point, our eyes became opened to that question. And we started grappling with it in real terms. I'm still grappling with that question. That's how I got here with another white guy talking about race. <laughs>
I'm always struck by the phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. My my dad was a Lutheran pastor, and I, I distinctly remember a sermon that he, he had like when I was a kid where he pointed out, you know, you actually move, go down when you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. When you're pulling on your boots, you're, you're actually moving down toward your boots. And the side to offer yeah, for, right? for I a mean, podcast episode. And again, like I understand now bootstrap theory is super problematic. I didn't understand that in 2005, and I should have, but I didn't. We don't know what we don't know sometimes and the, the learning. And we're part of a, an affinity group and I've talked to several other guys who are part of the White Men for Racial Justice. We're recording this in, in late January 2022. And last year in 2021, every month we would take a different sort of lens, a look at the, the work at, at racial justice work. And one of the months was spent around education. And there was some really fascinating research that came out of it. There was a lot of reflection. I'm curious for you who have spent so much time in education, thinking about this intersection, was there anything new that came out, out of that time for you? Any ahas that might've helped you sort of reframe or think, oh God, 26 year old me, right. That's exactly, that was, mm-hmm. that's what was happening. Off the top of my head, what comes up to me is less about something brand new and more about like stuff I had forgotten. I stepped down as the head of KIPP Philadelphia in 2018. So it's been three and a half years now where I've been sort of like on my own. And I think I just forgotten certain things. I take certain things for granted that people just sort of understand. Charter schools being like one of the big examples. I think that our, in our group, that learning month was kicked off by Sharif Elmecki, a friend of mine, who is a very sort of strong African-American leader in the education sector here in Philadelphia. He's dedicated his life and his career now is focused very much on getting more African-American teachers in classrooms across the entire state of Pennsylvania, across the entire country, and importantly, not just in African-American neighborhoods. There's some crazy statistic about there's 500 school districts in the state of Pennsylvania, and something like 460 of them or something don't have a single African-American teacher in the classroom. You know, when you think about Pennsylvania, you think about maybe Philly and Pittsburgh, but so much of Pennsylvania is not Philly and Pittsburgh. He's a strong advocate for charter schools, and he made connections to the freedom school movement that he himself went to freedom schools, which is basically what we would think of now as like an independent school, but it was very much set up around sort of stressing black empowerment. He then led a charter school for 10 or 15 years or something before getting into this education training work now. I remember going into a breakout room after that, and one of the people said, so I'm confused. I thought charter schools were bad. <laughs> and, you know, you're reminded that progressive politics and the Democratic Party have very much taken on the points of view in education that the teachers union has taken on. And since most charter schools are not unionized, there is an oppositional sort of narrative out there. Charter school bad, district school good, because charter school non-union workforce because charter school takes money away, right? But I just sort of forgot that. And, you know, I think Betsy DeVos did a lot of damage in that regard because as Trump's education secretary, she strongly touted charter schools. And I remember at the time being like, please stop talking about charter schools. Stop. You're not helping. You're making this way worse. I'm not interested in your sport. Thanks. But there is, like anything, like I've been in this sector for so long, I think I've, I've forgotten so much. And, and one of the things that was opaque to me, or, or I had just sort of like forgotten about, I guess, is this someone who's not working in education, looking at it from the outside and how they could hear that narrative, charter bad. Like anything, we could have found a different speaker who would be a prominent education voice, African-American education voice, Philadelphia, who would say charter bad. 
And the answer, as always, I think, is it depends. One of the things that resonated for me from his presentation and from that discussion was around harm. We talk about this a lot where, you know, people don't want to make mistakes, uh, but you actually are already making the mistakes. What happens in the learning is you realize the mistakes you're making or the harm you're inflicting on, on people of color. That really resonated for me, as well as the data around at what point do you need to start talking about race and racism with kids? Mm -hmm. And it was that setup where, like, do you start in fifth grade or, is, or middle school or is it earlier in fifth grade? And it, like, it keeps going back and back, you know, earlier and earlier to be like, yeah, preschool would not be too early to start talking about race and racism. When do you start talking about math? <laughs> right? Like, don't teach a kindergarten calculus. Don't do that. But you should be developing number sense, right? Like, when do you teach grammar? Well, you know, I, I, we're not going to whip out sort of, you know, what is it, Web and Strunk or whatever. But we are going to, like, identify numbers. One of the points I think Sharif made that night was, like, white people are the people who are asking themselves, when do we teach about race? People of color are talking about it all the time. It's a uh, constant. It is an obligation of a parent of color. It was sort of, I believe, and I don't want to misrepresent what he was saying, but my memory of that conversation is that he was basically saying, we don't have a choice. We're talking about it. There's a privilege even in asking the question that we have to recognize. We talked about race with our students at KIPP from kindergarten on, but it was very intentional, just like a math curriculum. It was very intentional around how it was discussed. One of the things that you have to be conscious of is at KIPP, we went on a journey in terms of like the demographics of our workforce, the demographics of our teaching core. By the time I left, we were about 55% people of color, 45% white. But that was an intentional effort that we embarked upon around maybe 2012, 2013, because we were more like 70, 30 white, non-white. One of the things that you have to be thinking about in terms of like doing harm is how are we setting up our teachers? How are we preparing our teachers to talk about race with our kids? To be clear, everybody needs that training because you want to teach these lessons in a way that everybody can receive it and everybody can learn from it. Yes, our white teachers may have been less comfortable talking about race, may not have been. No one's a monolith, right? No demographic group's a monolith. But how do we provide that support? And it starts back even previous. Like, how do you convince everybody that it's important? How do you convince people that it matters? I think a lot of organizations, both that I'm currently with my clients, but also just like my friends work for, et cetera, had like this reckoning around what happened at George Floyd's murder, right? What happened in, in May, June of 2020. Hey everyone, it's Tim. I want to take a quick break from our conversation to share some really exciting news with you. We spend a lot of time on this podcast discussing how to create inclusive, equitable, thriving anti-racist workplaces. About a year ago, my colleagues Courtney Harge and Nicola Carpenter even taught a course about an important piece of this work, race-based caucusing. And here's the exciting part. We just released an online version of that popular course. If you're listening to this podcast and wondering, how do you actually create an anti-racist workplace? This course is for you. If you're curious about what race-based caucusing in the workplace is, what it isn't, how to get it started, how to keep it going, this course is for you. Courtney and Nicola share their insights from having done this work together for years. They share their templates, 
their practical strategies, and actionable advice to help you succeed in implementing this in your workplace. Whether you're an HR professional or a team leader, consultant or educator, CEO, or really any role in the organization who is ready to invest time and energy into creating a more inclusive and understanding workplace, join the course and learn how this tool can be a part of the change towards more equitable, thriving futures. Head over to bit.ly backslash caucus course to check it out now. And be sure to use the code caucus50 at checkout for $50 off the price. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Our reckoning at KIPP came much earlier. We had a similar moment around Michael Brown's murder in Ferguson, Missouri. That for us sort of launched the type of action that now I think lots of other organizations are seeing launched in the wake of George Floyd. And so we've always been a, a little bit out in front, although we are certainly behind other places that either never needed to have a reckoning because they understood it from the get-go or had their reckoning around Trayvon Martin's murder. There are plenty of moments where we could have realized it at KIPP. There's so much there to unpack around how do you teach teachers to teach about race? Certainly, we could tie this all into what's happening in Florida and Virginia and these states that are passing these critical race theory laws, which are basically banning these conversations. It's reminiscent of a quote, while white people are busy learning, black people are dying, mm -hmm. and that the world doesn't stop while white people are reading, you know, me and white mm -hmm. supremacy and all, you know, really great books, but yeah. it's a lot of catch up that, that needs to happen for, for white folks here. That's right. And as leaders, your obligation to get up to speed now, yesterday, is profound. And that is something that I am still sort of learning, but I'm trying to get better at conveying to clients who still are maybe not thinking about this or not thinking about it in that way. They're still thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Thinking about that as like stuff I have to check the box so that I can get back to what's important. As a white guy who has access to power in these organizations, as I'm brought in as a consultant, like trying to find my voice and, and to be insistent and consistent and persistent and be heard. I come in my hair on fire and I just am going to be dismissed. But I feel that hair on fire urgency around this issue. So how do I show up? Again, that's something I'm constantly trying to be sort of like metacognitive about. I imagine part of it is in how you talk about the work. I know from your, your one pager about consulting, you did some work around centralized versus decentralized leadership and decision-making. Part of my work is also around sharing leadership power and decision-making. And so it seems like a hot topic right now or is a to hot topic right now. And you can talk about that without talking about race and racism and oppression. But in doing that, you're helping reframe and adjust who holds power, who holds decision-making, who's involved in a process. I imagine that's somehow how you're sort of sneak some of this work into maybe organizations who aren't ready yet. Yeah, you know, you're making me think about, so I led a, like a cohort-based learning process for, for like emerging leaders in education in Philly here. I asked people, you know, in like November or something, I was like, hey, people are building, you know, Christmas, Hanukkah, you know, Kwanzaa lists, wish lists on Amazon. So tell me your best leadership book, your favorite book about leadership. And people are writing like, good to great, and like all the stuff that you'd sort of expect them to write. Except one of my participants wrote Horton, here's a who. And I kind of thought it was like a joke, right? I'm like, get the heck out of here. So, you know, go ahead, explain Horton, here's a who. Get, lay it on me. I don't get it. And what she said was, think about that book for a second. 
Horton can hear something. He becomes aware of something nobody else understands, nobody else is aware of. And now he's got a decision to make. Do you go on and be popular, be, you know, make the easy decision to sort of say, ah, I can't, nothing I can do, bro. Or do you put yourself on the line? Do you put your credibility at risk? Do you put your own personal safety at risk and say, no, 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 now that I know this thing, I can't unsee it. And the moral thing to do, the right thing to do is to stand up to power and say, stop. She was like, that's leadership. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, you are right. What a great call, right? As I think about power, I, I honestly, that, that little quote, like that moment, I'm thinking about this 10 years later, right? But like that really shifted for me the way I thought about my job in many ways. As the leader, it's your job to listen. As the leader, it's your job to make sure that you see unintended consequences of actions. As a leader, it's your job to make sure that you are aware and in tune with all stakeholders and how your decisions are impacting them. So as I think about whether it's decentralization, centralization frameworks, or you know, decision rights matrices, or whatever it is that I'm sort of working with a client on, there's a big part of that around leadership, which comes down to like, who are you listening to? Who has a seat at the table? And then you know, from there, you can sort of go on to like, who gets promoted? Who has power and what does power mean? Who gets budget allocated to their projects? And then you can start to really start to unpack. And this was the work that we started to do after Michael Brown's murder at KIPP, Philadelphia. We looked at our demographics, but we went one step further. And again, this was guided very much by work. We KIPP nationally brought in folks at Teach for America who were way ahead on this stuff, at least ahead of KIPP. And they explained what they did at TFA. This idea of we're not just looking for the overall percentages of like male versus female or white versus non-white or, you know, whatever else, whatever, however the way you could slice demographics. But then we go one cut deeper and now we're looking for, okay, what about, so this is all your employees, but what about instructional staff versus non-instructional staff? What about leaders versus people who aren't leaders? Do you see gaps? What about inside departments? We figured out, we didn't realize, we were running four schools at the time, and we had something like 14 math teachers, and we didn't realize that we had one African-American math teacher and 13 white math teachers. We just didn't realize it. And it's like, oh, but if you look at like our social studies department, or heck, if you look at our janitorial and, and cafeteria staff, uh, so you can't just say overall employees, that, that's not enough. You have to go deeper. Another thing we talked about was who's getting promoted, because we realized that the leadership ranks, we had an overrepresentation of white leaders in our schools. Amelia comes out, it's like, so what now? What, right? So what are we going to do about this? We undertook really intentional efforts around saying, okay, so what are we going to do about, about that? And part of it we learned, and again, we learned this from Teach for America, was around who has a seat at the table and who gets time with me, who gets time with the principal. In my mind, my door is always open. Anybody can come in and talk to me when that door is open. If I'm sitting there, I'll put down what I'm doing and talk to you. I go into the teacher workroom. I go into the cafeteria. I hang out after school, before school. I want to be present. I want to be visible to my teachers. But the people who take me up on those opportunities tended to be white. And then if you happen to be in my office when I'm dealing with something, I would always pull you in. But you're not in my office unless you feel comfortable enough to walk in the door. And people 
I had to deal with the hard reality that people were way more likely to walk in the door if they looked like me. There was something I was doing. There was some signal I was sending. I've had the good fortune of getting to know Dan Coyle a little bit over the years, author of Culture Code and Talent Code. And he talks about belonging cues and this idea that like organizational cultures send signals to certain people that they belong. And you may not be thinking about it, you may not be aware of it, but you are, if you're, if you're a leader, you're sending signals to people about whether or not they belong. How as leaders do we become more aware of the signals that we're sending? Because I think inclusion, you know, it's still often cited in DEI work, right? But like, really, this comes down to belonging. If you feel like you belong, you're more likely to bring your full self to work. You're more likely to contribute in ways where we get to benefit from the diversity of our team. These are the things that we were thinking about at KIPP. And these are the things that I'm trying to, these experiences that I had that I'm trying now to help my clients sort of work and do it in a way where I might feel the hair on fire urgency, but I'm not coming off as so sort of confrontational in their face that they can't hear it, which is hard for me. Yeah, because you feel that urgency. I feel the urgency Horton felt. Currently in, in our affinity group, we've been working through Layla Saad's Of Me and White Supremacy. And in my own journaling, I was reflecting on the first time I taught my leadership and team building course at the new school. Making long story short, I, I was given two days before I started teaching that course hmm. and I had to build the syllabus in two days. So I pulled like 15 books off the bookshelf. I grabbed all the articles that were sort of seminal leadership articles. And it wasn't until the second year when I was teaching that course, when I was going back through the syllabus that I realized every single author was white and probably 95% of them were men. And it was just like, those were the books on my shelf that I had. And, and then, all right, so who else do I seek out? What other books are out there besides, you know, white guys writing about leadership? Yeah. Well, Dr. Zeus was a white guy <laughs> with, yeah, his own, with his own problematic history, might I add. But no, I think that that's something, that's something that I think about a lot, too. I'm now going out of my way to read non-white authors, like a lot of people I think are. I read this great article recently about science fiction, uh, which I like. And basically, the article put forth just this idea that like, when you think of science fiction, you're probably thinking like Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, like these folks who've been elevated as like the seminal science fiction authors, but they're all white dudes. And when you read science fiction by someone who's not a white guy, by someone who's not American, you actually, science fiction is different. What they're writing is different, has a different take because so much of what you write is so informed by your personal experience and your history. So I've got Octavia Butler on, on my, my nightstand right now, and I'm super jazzed to read that book because I haven't, I have never just sort of gone that route. Just one example of a thousand probably of like something I was blind to, but I hear it and I'm just going, of course, yeah, sure. Like I need to read some science fiction by someone who's not an old white dude. We've covered a lot of exciting ground, uh, belonging, inclusion, power dynamics. Often think of like, as you were talking about taking a look at your organization and who's in what roles, I think of that as like the financial balance sheet. You might not like your balance sheet. Mm -hmm. You might not like your cash position, but like that is what it is. And then at least, you know, like where to from here, what can we do about this? Yeah. Yes. 100%. And I think people lose that sense. I think this comes back to like white fragility a little bit. This idea of like, I'm like actually afraid to know because it's going to be so bad. And then that means I'm bad. At some point, you have to be courageous enough to say, okay, this is what it is. And like, shame on me if I don't do something to improve it. I was a part of a, a, a multiracial group 
that was thinking about how to tackle issues of white supremacy culture. And we took a trip to Richmond. And some of the guys from our, the affinity group that you and I are now in, Tim, were in that group. We did the Richmond Slave Trail. We had a local pastor, black pastor, sort of tell the story of the first slaves. And like we walked the exact path that those people walked. And we're trying to put ourselves in their shoes and think about what that would have felt like and think about what that would have been. It is this unbelievable experience, emotionally exhausting. You're basically crying the entire time, at least I was. And I remember we carpooled there, right? And so like now I'm in the car with two black women who I basically just met. We, we were just sort of silent. And, and then we, we started listening to music. And then the one woman says, so how are we all feeling? And I'm just like, I just feel this deep guilt and shame. I'm like ashamed to be white right now. And what she said to me, I'll never forget. She was like, well, that doesn't do any good. Like, why do you feel shame? She's like, I feel shame too, because I'm a human. And like that humans could do that to other humans. That's embarrassing. That's unbelievable to me. But like, you should only feel shame if now that you've thought about this, you don't go do something about it. I needed that in that moment. I think I probably knew that also, right? And I heard that before, but like in that moment, it was just so in my face and in my, in my bones. And I just like, my whole body was just like wrecked from the experience. I was just so grateful that she said that. We've talked a little bit in our group, Tim, about like, it is not black people's jobs to like teach us. And I will say that like, when you're fortunate enough to be in a position where someone does like, listen, listen, I listen to that. And I think about that. And, and again, bring this back to all this CRT stuff and like how these laws are being written about, like nothing can ever be taught that makes you feel guilt or shame. And I think about like, man, if you even think that that's the point of these lessons about race, then you're like so far from understanding what it is that we're trying to, to convey and what we're trying to teach. The point is, once you know this, once you see this, once you've become aware of these structures, of this white supremacist system that we live in, once you've been unplugged from the matrix, you can't take the blue pill and just go back to sleep. You have to take the red pill and you have to figure out what you're going to do about it. As I think about this now, I try to suppress the shame and now my shame is reserved for when I know something is wrong and I don't do anything. Mark, that's really powerful. We've, we've come up to our time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. Thank you so much for your work and guidance on this as a, a mentor and colleague in, in, in this journey together. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Tim. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for using your platform to, to shine a light on this a bit. I'm grateful for the opportunity and also grateful for your work. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or a phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.